0: It's February 1st, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to The Candid Frame. This month officially marks the third year of the show, and in thinking about what I could do to note the occasion, I thought I'd do something completely different. So today's interview is not with a photographer, but a musician. Now, Before you think that odd and wonder what it has anything to do with photography, I suggest that you may be very surprised at the similarities the two share. My guest Stefan Oberhoff is a jazz musician and a close friend. And we've spent many nights talking about what it means to be an artist. It was during one of those conversations that I got the idea to do this show. Now, this episode is much longer than most Candid Frame episodes, but I hope that you find every minute of this show interesting and hopefully a little inspirational. So thank you for listening to this show for the last few years. There's more ahead, but today, sit back and enjoy our conversation Stefan Oberhoff. Well, we're going to do something different with today's show. For the last two years, I've been interviewing photographers, and I thought that, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to have someone who isn't a photographer, has nothing to do with photography, to discuss something that I'm always fascinated by and and probably preoccupied by, and that's just the nature of creativity and the challenges that we face as artists. And so I'm having my friend Stefan, and how do you say your last name? Oberhoff. (laughs) Oberhoff. As a guest on the show, because we often have discussions about just this, about getting past our hurdles, being creative, in the many obstacles that we face in trying to do the the things that we do. So Stefan, welcome to The Candid Frame. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. We talk a lot um, about... About what it means to be an artist, and and in your case, it's it's a musician. But what why don't we start off
1: with you telling us a little bit about what it is that you do and your pedigree? Okay, pedigree. I'll I'll try to be not too petty about the pedigree. <laughs> I um, um let's see. I grew up in Germany, um in Cologne, very close, small town close to Cologne, and uh, my dad figured out when I was six that I was somewhat musical. He went up to a piano and he struck a note. And he said, sing that for me, because he had the hunch that I was picking up the pitches. And I was picking up the pitches. And uh, so he sent me to a neighbor to get my first few piano lessons, which were somewhat unsuccessful, because my mind was always pretty much everywhere. I have probably what they call a case of relatively creatively usable ADHD. I think that's what I got. And um, I... Uh, To make the long story short, I fidgeted around a lot with music, played around, had bands, but never took it seriously because music in Germany is still widely regarded as what they call a breadless art. A breadless art means that, yeah, you can do this as a hobby, but please don't think about doing this as a living. And interestingly enough, uh, it was always American musicians who... I ran across later in life, not later in life, actually in my early to mid-twenties, when I was working in a music store in the middle of Germany in a small town called Osnabrück, where uh, I would just demonstrate an instrument, a keyboard, a synthesizer, or even drums, whatever. I'm a multi-instrumentalist, by the way. I do play six instruments, but four of them not very stage-ready, but others I play stage-ready, and that's mostly guitar and piano, so I'm primarily a pianist. Uh, but also guitar i can't i can't leave uh, I can't take my fingers of anything. I have to play accordion, I try trumpet, bass, percussion, um, you name it, so I just tried pretty much everything and working in a music store is somewhat caters to getting you know getting interested in all sorts of different instruments um, and what I do to make that answer a little shorter is I became very interested to Muse, instruments on top of instruments by the techni- technology of called multitracking. Uh, it started pretty early. I started doing that when I was about seventeen or so. I had two tape recorders, and that's actually a funny story because they had different speeds. One of them s- recorded a little faster, the other played back a little slower, and one of them had the record button broken. so I for example, I record this rhythm track with a shaker. So put that shaker, shaker track on the one cassette deck, put it into the other uh, other cassette deck that would only, only do playback, but played a little faster. So now I had a shaker a little faster. And on the other machine that only records, I added in now a strumming rhythm guitar. And now I had a shaker and a guitar together and uh, on one tape. And again, put that over into the other machine, which played a little faster. So you can imagine that the production got faster and faster. and Towards the end, it was pretty... <laughs> So it was pretty upbeat and by the end I was done with it. But that has that endlessly fascinated me because that kind of creation is so controlled. You can just stop and re-record. You can try it again. And that's something that, uh, that I was always drawn to and that has led to my current engagement. My, I would call it my breadwinner, being a music producer. And uh, that's what I'm now work as now but I'm breaking free from it as I beca- become to recognize music that's created on the spot as as actually truly where my heart is now and I've heard some of your music,
0: I've seen you perform and it's absolutely amazing but one of the things that I appreciate Can I have that in writing? <laughs> absolutely, it's recorded, it's yeah. worldwide Whoa. but one of the things that's very surprising that considering the amazing and talented musician you are is is the fact that we each come to the table with a host of insecurities.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: But it's amazing how each of us in our own way is able to produce something that's really amazingly beautiful that people really respond to. Mm-hmm. And it's every time I sit down and I have a chance to talk to you and hear you, I connect so much to that, mm-hmm. and don't you think it's absolutely amazing that, considering how screwed up we can be sometimes <laughs> in our heads, <laughs> that when we get out of our own ways, we're able to create beauty. You with with sound, and me with light and photograph,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and that's an amazing that's an amazing journey, mm-hmm. and I think it's one of the most exciting things about it. But I know in your i find my way of sort of negotiating through that, those pitfalls and those what's it been like for you particularly you know you you're in a more of a collaborative um art than mm-hmm. i am cuz mm-hmm. i just go out with myself with a camera that's it i really don't have to collaborate with anyone wow that's interesting how do you, how do you sort of negotiate that when you're having to deal with other people other singers other you know writers composers drummers
1: saxophonists whatever it is Wow, that's a really good question, and and uh, also I've never thought about that. Yeah, indeed, the photographer is in a relationship with its object, but the object may just be static, or moving, but you you have an indirect interaction with it, right? I mean, that's that I've never thought about that. Um, it's true. Um, at first, as I was describing when I was doing this multi-tracking stuff, and I came up with tracks that sounded somewhat like music. Um, that was an easy. An easy thing to do and there's actually two questions wrapped up in one first of all the questions was what is your process what is the what is some of the, the pitfalls and what what are the what the the you know those um kind of rugged terrains that i have to negotiate internally to arrive at that because as they say we can be our own worst enemy and that's very true for me i mean when you said amazingly talented i'm going like Oh, I'm not sure if that really applies to me. Like, oh shoot, man, that's a big label. Ooh. So I realize I get this this discomfort right there, and I want to minimize it. That's my, has been my tendency thus far, until I got pointed out to me by by friends um, who are very spiritual and and educated in that matter that that I'm supposed to just accept that. You know, it doesn't mean that I have to you know, put my, what's I, that, you have this beautiful uh, saying, light under the, you don't put your light under the, So, in an in, in, in American idiom uh, that they call it, we we have a, you don't want to put your talent and stash it away and, and, and hide it from the public. So I forgot what that word, light under the shovel, bechel, bevel, <laughs> I forgot, <laughs> it. it doesn't matter. But what it is, I've, I'm just beginning to learn Then, there's always a certain amount of discomfort, because there is a part of my psyche that wants to limit what I can do. It wants to say, oh, no, no, you're very limited. You're very limited. And that's a core message that I carry and that I have to um, deal with. I wouldn't wouldn't call it battle um, because I can't battle it. It's most of the times actually a lot stronger than I. Um, I battle that by doing a couple of different things. For example, this is taking you straight to the to the the nitty gritty of how I work nowadays. Sometimes this is just about a year ago. A year ago, I decided that I was going to make an audio journal about my creative process when I practice. For some reason, I have a natural ability to play piano and that and and play the guitar or whatever instrument that I touch because I have inherent musicality that you know just comes out. Sometimes completely untrained, so I can draw from that. But when I have to sit down and methodic- methodically practice, something happens to me that will make me want to just go really tired and really numb after about a period of fifteen, twenty, thirty, thirty, forty minutes. If I can be at the instrument for one hour, that's lucky. I'm lucky. Uh, I've I've in the past have given up after that one hour because I thought, oh boy. <laughs> I need a cappuccino now and do something else. So needless to say, if my clients sit here, I can work with them for 10 hours. You can give me a 10-hour day, I can do that. For myself, to practice, to to work towards realizing the potential I have on the instrument, practicing, as I said, 15, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, I'm out. I want to take a nap. Real badly. (laughs) So... Uh, so what I did was I took an, uh, I have a little recording software on my computer, and so I start the, practicing those scales. And scales, on some level, are somewhat close to mantras. You know, if you ever done the mantric meditation where just one little phrase rotates around in your mind, you you know it's it fosters a certain psychological processes where thoughts come up and stuff bubbles up like in a glass of champagne. And what bubbles up for me, I never realized that until I started making a journal about it. And so every time a thought would come to my mind, I tune into it briefly, I stop the practice and I go to the computer. Here's what I just thought. Oh, here's that client that just didn't pay the invoice on time. Now he wants me to do two sessions back to back. He's probably not going to pay. And I realize, whoa, I'm getting carried away into something that I would call a sort of like a victim thought. And that's really big because the energy arounding that is a negative energy. It's an energy that takes that takes joyous that joyous child energy that I want to have that brings me to the instrument in the first place. There's some part of me that clamps down on that. So that's one of those things and I journaled and, and thought after thought that would come up after that half over that half hour period was indeed victim thoughts. So negative thought, negative thinking.
0: I have a similar experience when i go out to photograph it's almost every every time uh, particularly if, if it's been a long time since i've gone out to shoot there's this feeling of, of anxiety about you know whether or not i'll be able to produce whether i'll be able to find anything you know whether i'm just wasting my time and i photograph on the street so it's it's basically i'm expecting randomness and the chaos around me to all of a sudden sort of juxtapose in just one little moment and that I'll be quick enough with the camera to be able to capture it and make something of it Mm. and it's it's always um very challenging for me to well, it's a challenging process to, to, to start with, you know, to put yourself out there with no expectation of what you're going to see or what you're going to find and to make an image. But sometimes I wonder, am I up to it? Mm. And I find that it's the actual process of just beginning to walk, walk the street, to walk up and down, mm-hmm. to start looking, to just take the photograph. Mm-hmm. Irregardless of whether it's a good photograph or not, mm-hmm. Whether it works or not, that's not the point. It's like you said with the scales. It's the the process of actually just getting into the rhythm of doing it. And I find inevitably as I I stay out there, even though my tendency after 15, 20 minutes is to pack up the car and go back home, Mm -hmm. it's like just keep going, just keep going, just start shooting, just start making the images. And at some point, something happens. And there's a switch in my head. Mm -hmm. And... All of a sudden, that critic and that editor and that judge goes away. And it's just me and the camera and the moment. The moment. And I'm just, I'm just there. Mm. And I'm no longer expecting perfection or the absolute worst. And it's those moments that really make photography really precious for me. And I suspect probably for you when you're, you know, when you're in a, a really nice nice groove.
1: Yes, you know that. Actually, that touches on something uh, where I thought for a second. As you mentioned that example, I can, I can see you with your camera, with a gear. You would have taking it out of the box in the car, you know, out of that case, and just getting out of the car with it, with the instrument. And I thought, well, now you have done a lot of preparation, obviously by experience, preparation by reading and educating yourself. You learn about ISO, you learn about focal points and about multi focus and whatnot. But that, that's supposed to be gone when your feet hit the street right i mean you may still think "Mm, that backlight over there that's not going to work that's a that that but that shadow over there that's going to make it look really important really cool if i take you know so there will be logical and rational considerations but as you walk it touched on me that there's a part in you or in us which is common that can't be that can't be prepared that's a part that is a it's an innate ability an innate talent Uh, to tell us or in in, an innate entity inside of us that will tell us stop right here when i work with another artist i have a much easier time listening through their stuff and editing it so that it if if i have to make what we call a composite track let's say we have to take a piano performance and and the player uh, the musician played it several times because we thought, okay, on track one, I think we have the first verse. On track two, we have an excellent chorus. On track three, we have a great ending. So we'll make a composite track. We call it comping. So if I'm in comping, I'm very much more lenient on other artists in comping these tracks and putting these tracks out of multiple performances together, than I'm with my own. So that committee or the judge that we were talking about is the hardest on myself. And therein lies the danger, because if I allow that to take over too much, then it will impart a sterility on what I put out as a product. So my new prayer to make that full circle is, please, God, let me hear what's already good. Let me keep what's already good. Let me recognize that. Because that's beyond my control. With all that education, I can't recognize what's good. I can recognize if it's in pitch. If it's in good timing, but I cannot necessarily recognize if that's it's got the the molecule that physical molecule in it that will nourish another soul or myself if I listen back to it in a later time when I'm not involved in the editing and the controlling of that of that particular piece of music.
0: Yeah, it's recognizing what you know and trusting it, and like you said, being okay with it, mm-hmm. and that's difficult because as artists, we're often at least, at least, most artists that I know are often focused on the things that we don't know. I don't know this piece of equipment that well, or I don't know this aspect about theory, or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and we go, okay, I don't know that. This other guy knows it, and look at his work. Yeah. So obviously, because he knows this or he owns this piece of equipment, he's better than me. And it's that actually is not the case because it isn't a case of someone being better than somebody else. Yeah, We're all very, very unique, but we end up focusing on our flaws, and that's oftentimes to our detriment, if we allow it to be, mm-hmm. and it keeps us from really finding the joy in what we do. Oh my God. You know, We start off so excited about whatever it is we mm-hmm. do, and then we start getting caught up, and all of a sudden, we have so much angst about what we're doing, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, what happened to the joy that... Got me to first pick up the camera, for you to pick up the, to you know to sit at the keyboard for the first time, and I think that's one of the perils that we we face, particularly us grownups. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're doing this kind of work, you look at kids, yeah, and they're just
1: they're just doing it, yeah, they're just doing it. So that's boy, you just went to the deeps, to the deep, the deep workings of of this 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 magic fabric that art is and art in no matter what form it is it could be dance photography music it has the the very same ingredient uh, that it comes down it's actually non it's in it's intangible i think it's intangible um you know you were describing uh, the joy um the joy i c- kept thinking what is this joy actually what is it i'm pretty analytical which can also get in my way heavily <laughs> It's very useful to turn the computer on. It's very useful to use the plug-in tools, you know, the equalizers and compressors and whatever you use to make the music sound as as if we did a good job. And sometimes we actually have, which is great. And the lesser, you know, probably like a like, you know, if you don't have to use a lot of Photoshop on your picture, you think, wow, wow. Let me look at it at this monitor over here. And the, no, it looks great on both monitors. Wow, I don't need to do. I don't need to do anything to it. No touch-ups, nothing. No brushes, no blurs. And if we have that in a recording, I'm always very happy because those tend to be the signals that cut through every playback system, every audio system, the best, consistently. The more I need need to use what we call equalizer or compression or other things to make it fit in the mix, we take one part of it away that it originally had. So... In the beginning, when I didn't really know how to make a proper mic placement, the microphone placement, I mean, where does the guitar sound the most natural or the most fitting, that particular tune that it gets recorded on, I wasn't very skilled in doing that. But I knew I could be very criminal in the use, usage of equalizer and compression, so I would just make the sound, get the character that I wanted it to have in the first place. But I did not know how to take my camera and point it at the object as in the microphone and pointed at the object of the recording. But talking about these skills, I, I want to go back one more time to about that childlike joy. There is um, a meditation tape that I use. Um, that's one of the very important thing for me recently has come to my uh, attention because I started accepting students lately as the touring season is a little slow right now. So I thought, you know what, I'm actually at home and I do... Enjoy very much the process of imparting that knowledge. That I'm sometimes, I sometimes I feel when I'm sitting in the studio, I think, "Oh my God, I wish I could share that with somebody who wants to learn about music." Right now, give that back to the community or pass it on. What I'm learning right now because uh, it it makes me feel so so incredibly. Full and not full of myself, but rich. It's so enriching that I think I have. this has to be passed on in some level. Uh, but coming back to this childlike joy that I sit here with sometimes, the if I see a child in a sandbox, completely immersed in just putting things together, they're not sitting there with a concept. They're not sitting there thinking, okay, uh, I'm going to make... Um, I'm going to make a a French castle from the 17th century. It's going to have four towers, and I'm going to put two Legos on top. They're not going to do that. They're just doing. And I think that we very likely have that in common. I believe that you have that, and I have that too. There's a part of me that can just sit down and play. And if we... How do we then take all this massive amount of education that we go through to get some astonishing results... And let that not get in our way so we can be in the moment. And for me as a musician, it's incredibly important to be, uh, for example, sit in a jam session with a band that plays, for example, some you know, bebop or jazz standards. And as you know, jazz has its origin in the blues, but the formal education around its scale material, the tonalities, the chord structures is incredibly deep. So I would like to have that education, but I would like to still play like that child. So How do I do that? Yeah. um,
0: It makes me think that that in terms of when I go out and shoot, it's about trying to get back to that playful place because that provides me the opportunity to really experiment, to take some risks. Because when you're a little kid, you're willing to go out and do stuff regardless of the consequences you mm-hmm. just go oh I want to try this mm-hmm. oh let me go check this out oh isn't that exciting mm-hmm. and and you're just exploring everything around you and I don't know you can tell me if that's the way it is for you but I know for me when I'm in that place I I'm hoping to make a lot of work just to shoot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of, of pictures, Mm -hmm. not expecting that every picture is going to be fantastic, but that later on when I'm going through and I'm editing through the pictures, I'll find the one that really kind of resonates. And then like how you require uh, a file that's really good so you don't have to do all the compression. I'm making the same effort in terms of making sure that the exposure and the focus and all of that is is spot on Mm -hmm. so that whatever adjustments I make allow me to bring out those qualities that are really are the strength of the image but but my real point is is the fact that I want to be able to play to be able to create this raw clay Mm -hmm. this raw material have a wealth of it so that when it comes time for the editor to actually come in he can come in and actually make those judgments which isn't really appropriate when I'm in the midst of creating the images. Yeah. That's, that, the editor and the critic has no place there. I just have to go out and play. Mm. It's only when I'm in front of the computer going through the images that that voice and that, that, that persona is, is really appropriate. And you can tell me if that's the same for you when you sit down at the, at the keyboard or not.
1: Wow, that's a really, really, really cool topic. We could make this a six-hour podcast, so we would never have to stop. Um, I meant to ask you this: when you, let's say, you step out of your car, and you think I'm going to walk down that street in hope that there's something here that that will catch my eye, something will tell me stop right here, and and point, literally, turn my head towards this one object or that one angle that shows something in a in in a really touching light or something that will connect. I think connective, looking for something that connects, which is very similar to music finding a melody, you know, that connects somewhere internally inside of me. Um but I meant to ask you, when you step on the street and you then go start walking, and now you see, wow, this building, wow, wow. And there's that lighter building and it's totally dark in that alleyway and the contrast of that, for example and you raise your camera, how much thinking, methodical thinking, is involved in that moment? Is it just a straight flurry of a little more exposure and a little different ISO? Or is it just this wash of thought and you arrive very quickly at what you need? Or is there any kind of methodical, logical thinking, like like a script showing up on a computer? Um, For me,
0: I'm really dutiful about Observing what's happening around me in terms of light, even before I found an image. So as I get out of the car, I'm looking at what the light is like mm-hmm. and setting my ISO and my white balance, and I set my camera's exposure either in manual mode or aperture priority uh-huh. so that the technical stuff, for the most part, is already decided for me. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm my camera is sort of optimized for the lighting that I... I'm in the midst of. So when the moment like that happens, all I really have to do is raise the camera to my eye and start making photographs. This is particularly important if I'm photographing scenes with people in it. Uh Because there's a moment that's happening there and I may only have a split second to capture it. I may not have the luxury of making 12, 20, 30, 30 photographs. So my camera is sort of preset, so when I raise the camera to my eye, the only thing I'm really concerned with is the overall composition and holding the camera steady enough that the image comes out sharp, because I can be so excited that I'm, I'm jerky with the camera and the image yeah. turns out soft. If it's a scene like the one you described where it's mostly about light mm-hmm. and the way it's hitting a building and the shadows that are created, I have... more leisurely time at that point in terms of not only the composition, but then I can go, okay, do I want to bias the exposure for the highlight, for the shadow? Do I want to do something else with the white balance? So those are two different scenes, but because of the way that I set up the camera, because of my awareness of of the camera and the controls that I need to be in charge of and responsible for, it becomes less about what's happening with the camera Mm -hmm. and more about what I'm seeing and how
1: it's going to translate in that frame. So that, that's an interesting answer. That actually opens yet another passageway. I was trying to equate that to what I go through as a musician. Let's say I show up on a on a jam session or on stage anywhere. Let's say it's a jam session with, you know, decent players, hopefully. Um, and I show up at the piano. My pre-setting, the way you said there's already one filtration going on that you use... A certain positioning. You position yourself in a way that you can get something useful. It's because you probably tell yourself, "Boy, if I go into that alleyway, there's no light in there. I'm going to be able to get a shot, and it's going to be flash, and then I won't be. It will be useless, you know, because it's flash and it'll bleach out." For me, it's uh, if I go to the to the stage. First of all, I put the chair at the piano, where so I can sit that I'm not squished up against the piano. Then. I try to get you know. I play a couple of notes up and down the piano just to get a feel for what the key bed is like. In which, in most cases, of most of the jazz clubs that we work at, of course, is pretty horrendous, because the piano will give me about maybe ten percent of the dynamic qualities that my own grand piano will give me, which makes it really hard. Because imagine you had to go out and you have to grab a camera that's you know like a like a like an Olympus for hundred and fifty dollars that has only one automatic setting, and then expect you to to come up with the result of something that you know, that is worthy of a recording or worthy of being printed in, in you know, a reputable magazine. So there's a preset. What's that preset? The preset, the way I preset myself is I try to get a feel for that keyboard. If there's a monitor system that amplifies the keyboard itself or the, the grand piano, whatever I'm playing on, I may ask the engineer, you know what, could you turn that piano down? It's kind of loud here in the monitors. I want to hear the other guys better. So there is a certain amount of preset pre-filter for me too, in order to what I'm putting down in that moment, so that it can so that it can, I can feel the balance happening because I need to mix it for my own ear first, and then what the engineer does on the outside, the way they project it into the club, that's really out of my control. Very similar to somebody who prints your material is also out of your control because you think, oh, man, this thing had so much beautiful depth and contrast. It shows up in the magazine, and it looks like, oh, two-dimensional. And the Magenta is, you know, I, I imagine that. You know, I'm a hobby digital photographer, so I, I, I don't really know what I'm talking about in that aspect. But um, earlier on, if I can retract for just one second, not retract, uh, re- re- retrace our steps for one second, you said something about trusting what we know Trusting what we know. That's a huge phrase because frequently I listen to somebody playing. Um, uh, there's a pianist, uh, um, I think, who was born or came out of Connecticut, uh, Brad Mildow. Amazing jazz pianist, very young. Again, one of those guys that's about like 20 years younger than me, you know, which is really frustrating because I keep thinking, you know, there's these kids here in town, they're half my age and they can play me off stage in about technically you know, by their skill set. They could play me off stage in, you know, about three, four minutes. However, I know also, thank God, that, you know, I'm not here to be the best of one particular skill set, but that I have to bring my person out. Person also, by the way, is my favorite favorite saying that I explained to a couple of friends of mine and I recently learned that what person is two words per which means through and sonara and that means sound. Through sound. So how do I find that sound that is me? How do I find that image, that only like an Ansel Adams, you know, you can see him. You know, there's one image you think that's that's got to be an Ansel Adams. Oh yeah. The way I hear like a Brad Meldal recording, said so that's got to be Brad. There's this classic evenness about his playing. Why I'm referring to Brad uh, is that Brad brought something into the playing where all of a sudden it wasn't necessary to learn. The blues and bebop stuff so much the phrases the the phrases of the masters so to speak which every young jazz musician l- learns, but he brought this Ravel and classical sensibility in there and it just and it flowed and it's sw- and it swings and and what by just doing that, he gave me permission to do that too, so he opened this pathway so others do give us permission because I frequently go there and think what. You can do that. You could. You mean in a left hand? All of a sudden, you just bang on your keyboard like this, make this big wallop of sound, like McCoy Tyner does. Say so what? You can do that? And and first, I want to judge you. Think well, that's not really playing the piano because you know I'm from European upbringing. It's pretty correct. You can't do that for if you if I do this for my teacher, you know, when I was a child and 13 years old, and if I would have done that to my teacher, he said, "What in God's name are you doing with this poor keyboard?" But he'll do that, and I sit in a club. For example, in front of Tiner, and he plays this wallop, this bangs his, or almost his arm on the left hand on the keyboard, and this thunderous thing comes out. And you know what? I was awestruck. So, he gave me permission to do that too. So, isn't that interesting? How others open these pathways for us. And that's that brings up the idea of
0: of comparisons. Which can be, can be to our benefit, or it can be really to our detriment. Particularly when we compare ourselves and our work, and we go, "God, this guy is this good." Particularly if he's younger, you know. Yeah, we go, almost. "What business do I have doing <laughs> I'm what I'm up. doing? I'm giving up." But you you bring up a perfect example of where comparison is really important because we can put aside that judgment about who's better and who's worse, it's like. Well, what is he doing? He's doing something different than I am. Mm-hmm. And what can I learn from that? Mm. Not necessarily that I want to copy it or emulate it, mm-hmm. but it may give me permission to do something that I otherwise might not consider doing. Mm. Like in photography, just like music, there are these rigid rules that people at first learn, you know, like the rule of thirds and you know, you don't use a wide angle to take portraits, you use like a 75 to 135 millimeter lens. And there are these things that they're basically guides mm-hmm. and rules and eventually they become laws that aren't meant to be broken and you can't do this and you can't do that. And then you see some photographer who goes, puts, composes a shot where the subject is at the very edge of the frame and half of the, half of the subject is, is uh, viewable. And you go, wait a second, you can't do that. <laughs> but you look at the photograph and it works. Yeah. It's like he's not following rule of thirds. The subject's not even the center. The whole subject isn't even there. Yeah. He's cutting off not only a hand, he's cutting off half the body. <laughs> but the image works. Yeah. And then you see people using like a, a wide-angle lens and they're taking portraits. And you go, wait, 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 that's not supposed to work. That's not-. And then you look at it and you go, it does work. Yeah. And it opens up what's possible, yeah. as long as you're willing to, to, to free yourself of the confines of those rules that are really self-imposed, yeah. but you hear that voice that someone's going to come and look at the picture and go, "Well, oh, you can't do that, but that, that sucks. Yeah. But if the image works, whether or not the rule exists or not, it works.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think that that really only happens when you're willing to take those risks, because you can follow all the rules. Of composition, of exposure, of focus—all those, you know, things that they fill in these big textbooks. You can have all those qualities, mm-hmm. and the image just sits there.
1: Yeah, you know that's that's such a good example of breaking the rules. There's two things I I have uh, that come to my mind that I tell my students or my friends in the in in you know whatever in the jazz or whatever music scene that I move in here in L.A. First of all, uh, I remember a workshop with uh, Ernie Watts, uh, the the great tennis saxophone player, or saxophone player, period, because he plays all sorts of saxophones, up at the Grove School uh, when it was still existent in uh, Van Nuys, California. That was my reason to come out to the United States, period, to study jazz. Um, Ernie was asked, or had, had spoken previously about breaking the rules about uh, uh, learning certain scales and then breaking the rules. And so a student piped up and said, Ernie, why do I even have to learn the rules if all I'm supposed to do is breaking them anyhow? And only Ernie could do an answer like that. I don't know him personally, but he's one of those guys where he just opens his mouth and he'll let four words out and they'll hit it to the point. In this case, I think it was four or five words he says, because you don't know what you're breaking. Wow. You won't know what you're breaking, as if there was a validity to get that, that, that r- rule, that particular phraseology, that scale material, under your fingers, and then willingly break it, versus just noodling across it without ever having learned it. As if, I don't know why the creative power lies in that... There lies so much creative power in that. Maybe it's, it's, it's similar to a nuclear explosion. By nature, a nuclear explosion, at least on the surface of our planet, isn't supposed to happen, right? I don't know if anything before humankind has ever created a nuclear explosion on the surface of the Earth. I know that they're going on between stars and galaxies, black holes, but on the gravity conditions and the mass conditions that we have on our planet, we don't have a nuclear explosions human beings learned about the rule and then they broke the rule by colliding these things have a whatever a particle beam hit a molecule or hit an atom and you have a nuclear explosion an incredible release of energy so is that does that did that require study and extreme precision yes it did did it have an incredible result yes it did I'm not a big fan of explosions, I have to say, <laughs> but it's a good example. Maybe that's what Ernie was referring to. I'm not sure. The other one, the other reference to that is is biblical, and I, I will not try to persuade anybody of my particular belief system, but I grew up in in the in the in the, in the Christian belief. And there's the example of the Sadducees, Pharisees, the scribes, who told one particular person in in our religious upbringing and he said, "Hey, wait a minute. You're sitting in the fields, you're not washing your hands, you're not supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that." But the guy worked. You know, he did his miracles, you know. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm not afraid about it to say it because that's how I grew up. I mean, that was the stuff that stuck with me, you know. Now, I'm trying to translate that into my life today because these are all um these are all cornerstones of our internal recognition, where we recognize things and think, wow, you know, this applies to me, is to how do I learn these rules and then break them, and the creative power that gets uh, unleashed out of that. I know one thing. Um, I came here to L.A. and found a private coach, Terry Trotter, who's a wonderful piano player, played with Frank Sinatra and uh, Larry Carlton and Natalie Cole for decades, literally, and became my coach. And he looked at my the way I played. uh, He said, play a D-flat major scale for me, just a simple scale on the keyboard. And he looked at me and said, who taught you your fingering? And I said, "Um, um, no one. And he said, you might want to work on that. And then I heard him play that same scale, and it sounded like somebody ran a string of pearls through three fingers. It felt like this even... It didn't feel like a scale anymore. It felt like a just a simple major scale felt felt like a work of art, and in a way, it's uh, I don't know what the parallel would be in photography, but um, um, another great guitarist. I wonder if it's I'm trying to remember. It was Pat Martino, but one of these guys said uh, Russell Malone. Here it is, Russell Malone. Said uh, if you learn how to educate, how to educate, train your tone, so you got a really good tone, you actually don't have to play that many notes, because you know we have this funny saying about jazz musicians where they say the ja- jazz musician is the one that plays three million chords for an audience of three, and the rock musician does the opposite; it plays uh, three chords for an, op- an audience of three million. So there's something about many notes because we have so many options in jazz. Still yet I feel so confined by some of the rules and as I'm just now reworking a new a new foundation of harmonic connection. And I find my students sitting there and saying, well, it's weird whenever I hear you play, it sounds like you're just finding these things. And I tell you, Baryanex, I have no clue how that person's coming up with that conclusion because internally I'm still assembling so much in my head. But on the outside, it already comes across as something organic. Have you have you noticed this oh, before? Yeah, when
0: I've taken people out to shoot with me, if I'm teaching a workshop or I just go, people have asked me, what are you looking at? Because they'll see me raise my camera and begin taking pictures, and they don't see it. And there's this whole thing that's going in my my head in terms of the light, the juxtaposition of colors, of tones, of contrast, of texture, all that happened in a split second and all of that happened as a result of me just constantly training myself how to see, practicing seeing even when I don't have a camera, Hmm. even when I'm driving down the road when I used to commute from from Westwood to to Pasadena and, and back. I used to drive. I'd be on the freeway in the late afternoon around this time of year, and the late afternoon light would be hitting these buildings. And part of me sometimes would regret that I couldn't get out of the car and make mm-hmm. a photograph, but other times I just took joy in the fact that I recognized it,
1: mm-hmm. that
0: I saw it, and that I was able to take pleasure in that, in that beauty. But it was, it was this practice of just seeing and not attaching that to the expectation that I have to make a photograph because I was developing that sensibility mm-hmm. so that when I am out on the street, when I do have the camera in my hand, that I can recognize what's what's in front of me. That's That's one of my biggest joys about photography is that I can be in the midst of something that everyone else is walking past. And I can see this little sliver of something and make something so that when they look at the photographs and go, I was right there, I saw that, but I didn't see what you saw. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great pleasures that I have about making making photographs, particularly when I am around other photographers. It's just like, look what I saw. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a sort of a little competi- competition thing going on. But I am amazed at some of the photographs that those other guys make because I look at the LCD on their camera and I go, "Man, I didn't see that." Yeah, and it was right in front of me. So it makes me appreciate that whatever personal experience that we each have, we can be given the same palette in terms of the material that's out on the street, but we're not guaranteed to make the same photograph. Regardless if we have the same camera, if mm-hmm. we're the same age, if we have the same schooling, you know, that doesn't guarantee that anybody's going to make the distinctive picture. In fact, we're, we're not. Mm-hmm. If anything, we're just going to make the, the picture that's really true to who I am and who he is or who you are and That's great, that's wonderful. When I look at photography that way, I get away from that whole issue of comparison. I think I I suffer less from it now than I used to, Uh, but it makes me appreciate what someone else can do. Mm -hmm. So when I see someone, particularly that I've taught, discover that and they make a photograph that I wish that I had taken, I don't feel so much jealousy or insecurity, but sure happiness that I helped someone else discover a world that sometimes i feel is only exclusive
1: to me but they're doing it in their own way mm-hmm. that's very interesting because when you can find yourself in that car and that light hits those buildings you think oh god i wish i could i could get out of the car it's already one thing to to be able to say to yourself you know what i'm just glad i'm realizing that that's already a stage where part of you is fearless you know because as artists as artists there's a lot of fears to deal with, fearless I mean that there's part of you that can give yourself credit for, you know what but you, really, you it's isn't it cool that you recognize that because one thing i've been that I dealt with for a long time is the inability inability to give myself credit, and this feeling of that if I would work on my own music versus the music for the other artists that I've been working with over the last you know decade and a half here in l a uh, that it was worthwhile, worth my time and worth everybody else's time that I would spend time producing their music. But when it came to my music, the that I wasn't convinced that that was worth everybody anybody's time. I had a I had no connection with that. I had no it didn't have a deeper meaning, and that, it ties into what you were describing. I mean, there's a, there's a what what you're describing is to to give yourself credit. I think is a result of a certain thought process. And um, what I'm referring to is just as of late, um, as you know, the creative group that we go together uh, to has been tremendously helpful in establishing uh, a link from me to myself. Um, here's what happened. In the beginning, when I came to LA, I had brought all these instruments with me from Germany because you know I just wanted to have something to still do some tracks. And to use these instruments to help me, uh, assist me in my jazz studies so I can record a bass track and a drum track and then improvise to that and then take whatever I found back to the school and work deeper on it. And before you even know it, there were some students who would asked me, said, hey, have you done, did you do those tracks? I really like those tracks. And could you record something for me? Before you even know it, I had about 10 different students and I worked at 150 bucks a pop for a song back then with some of the students. And my skill set deepened as a as a music producer and of course i got sidetracked again into that because you know i just didn't believe enough in myself as a musician um to to pursue you know this what felt like a tedious task rather than this instant gratification that i get when i sit at the instruments which are under my perfect control there's something there that will straighten out the rhythm called quantization you don't have that in cameras (laughs) <laughs> you know. I mean you can do them in Photoshop. But I can take the rhythm if it's a little shaky and say, you know what, I'm gonna straighten this out. And then once I got the rhythm straightened out, I'm gonna put a play a bass sound to that drum sound and that may be just a little shaky. So I'll also straighten the bass sound out a little bit and whoop they sound like a well rehearsed band. And those things you don't have in photography, you have them on on other levels to make your stuff work. But, um, so I, I ended up getting sidetracked into that, and before you even know it, I had high end clientele. And the, the, that got topped pretty much in, 90, in the end of 95, I'd been uh, here for four years. All of a sudden, when I got a phone call, through a client of a client who had passed on a demo, had done a demo recording, which is a pre-recording of a song to be shopped to an artist such, such as maybe uh, Whitney Houston or Mariah Carey to, to cut. We call that a demo. And I'd done the demo, and I got this phone call. Yeah, hi, this is Bert Backrack. And I would like to book your studio for a couple of days. And I just about fainted. And it was just word of mouth. It just came out of this desire to just work on my own stuff. And other people found that useful. And I quickly turned these other people into my primary motivator to be here. And it got so bad, and after a while, I got so workaholic in that process. I got very, you know, I I generated good income, moved to a bigger house uh, in Woodland Hills, and uh, then I started having Melissa Manchester as a client. And these clients became the define after a while, and not out of their own doing, but in my own spiritual doing, they became my defining force while I was in the United States. And when the economy tanked and things slowed down in that business, the music business has undergone tremendous change because of the downloading stuff, the downloading scenario and and illegal and legal has changed a lot of things. But also we have an economy to deal, an economic factor to deal with. So I'm sitting here now amidst these instruments and my business slows down and that is a very hard situation to be in for me emotionally. And so but by the by the, by the this blessing of the of our creative group um i came home one day and i got a struck i don't know if they would call that uh, in recovery language you would call it struck sober i sat here and i took a, just a keyboard cord and took this little pandero drum. I have this cute little Brazilian drum. I don't know if it's anywhere around here. Here it is. This is a little drum that a friend of mine gave to me in Rio de Janeiro. It's called a... It's called a... Oh, sorry. A repique. A repique drum. And it sounds like this. And it's supposed to be played with a, with a, with a batter. And my friend didn't have the batter anymore. So I just put on a, a, a metronome click and started a recording a pattern of this drum because of this drum, this alive-sounding instrument, which wasn't a synthesizer, this new song exists. And I sat there, and a paradigm shift occurred to me a couple of days later because I didn't quit. I didn't quit after the typical 15, 20 minutes. Oh, I had a spiritual inspiration here. I had a, I had a, a little snippet of a tune. Let me abandon it. I didn't abandon it because I had nothing else to do. So in a way that was a blessing, huge blessing in disguise because over the last four months I've got 10 new songs now in my hand, partly co-written, but most of them written alone by myself. And I can sit here now and look around me and and thought A used to be, oh my God, I've got all this investment here in the studio. Where are my clients? Thought B, which is a paradigm shift is, oh my God, did you give all these instruments to me? I mean, for me to make to make my own music, really, am I worth that? It's a tremendous paradigm shift for me in terms of self-worth. That all of a sudden, I it's I'm worth myself sitting here now. This is new for me, because I was very, very had an easy time working for others rather than working for myself. It's really fascinating because
0: the whole theme of this year of these this year's interviews is personal projects or long-term projects mm. about doing stuff that's really. That you're really sort of passionate about, it, regardless of whether or not there's a, a market for it or whether there's a, a commercial interest in it all. It's just because it drives you. And over the last year, I just became rele- relegated to the fact that I really just want to be on the street. I teach at Art Center, so I have a lot of students there who are amazing at creating images out of ideas. They'll build sets, they'll work in the studio, they'll work with lighting, and I was looking at them and going, wow, if I really want to make a go at being a photographer, I guess I should learn how to do that, blah, blah, blah. And then I just went, well, but that's not the way I shoot. Mm -hmm. I want to be out in the street meeting people, seeing light, and just responding to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like the randomness. I'm glad that I don't have any ideas. I'm glad that I don't know what what to expect Wow! because when I do find it, it's such a, a marvel. The rush I feel when I see something mm-hmm. sometimes is much more valuable to me than the actual making of the photograph. And I don't know if that really makes any sense, but for me, it's the discovery. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I saw it. Wow. Mm-hmm. And if I can make a... A photograph of it. If I can make a final print, then that's that's gravy to me. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was being accepting of the fact that that's who I am, that's what I want to do. And now part of my process is trying to find ways where I can make income from other things, so I can just do photograph the way I want to photograph, so that I don't have to go out there seeking commercial clients mm-hmm. for work that I really
1: don't want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Wow, and work that may not resonate so deeply with you. I found it interesting how you were describing, you said, no, I don't want to know. I enjoy the not-knowingness. And I thought, well, what that feels like to me is there's a a somewhat fundamental form of faith already within you when you step out there because if you wouldn't have that faith, you would be too anxious, you'd stay in your car. Do you know what I mean? You would think, oh, boy. But I'm on that razor's edge. Yes.
0: I'm on that razor's edge because Mm -hmm. the not-knowing causes me some anxiety, but also that not knowing
1: is what I love about it. Interesting, because um, that that resonated with me again, talking about um, faith. When I sit down at the keyboard, I frequently think, oh boy, is there anything going to come out? Is there anything going to happen? And you know what? To this day, the feeling has never been different, but to this day I have to think back that if I gave it the time of day, if I gave it the time of day, and I want to restate that, if I gave it the time of day that I gave to my clients, the diligence that I applied for my clients to my own stuff, there's hardly ever a session where I walked out without having found something. Still, the feeling is the same. I sit down with this anxious dread. I think, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, other, I, I'm sure that people go through that in various stages of their artistic endeavor or artistic growth. For me, it was um, I like the I like the sessions that I make myself here the most, where I sit there in this, I call it that warm warm orange glow, where the committee and all these considerations, when they, as they want to come in, have no power. They may come. For example, I'm starting to give you an idea. By the way, this pattern that I just played earlier. A Brazilian professional percussionist would say, Oh man, he's not playing it right. The way to play this is like this. And I I would disempower myself. Where I am now, I'm thinking to myself, You play your original, authentic Brazilian pattern. Let me play this my way. Because if I do that, I know that some cat's going to say, well, it's in the percussions. I don't know. You should re-record. I've heard that. And you know what? Now when I create music and I have this blissful recognition that all I'm supposed to do is to record what, what you, you call it drives me, what moves me to tears, what what deeply connects with me on an emotional level. If I keep recording that, I think, that is God's will for me. I keep coming up with no better explanation than that, because if I bring out my unique uh, perception of what I feel the way, you know, I did spend time in Brazil, as you know, in 2004, those six months, and then also traveling back frequently for the sake of my relationship with my Brazilian girlfriend, um, has taught me a lot about the culture, yet I still look at it from with that angle of a German guy who lives in the United States who gets to travel to Brazil. But you know what? The things that come out sound very Brazilian to me, and I don't know why that is. But And they're not authentic to Brazil's authenticity. They are, however, authentic to what it felt in the moment, which made me just glow. I mean, I was sitting there basking in that sound, cranking the... Cranking it up and putting it on headphones and really raising the volume. It is, it is this, this inspired bliss that reminds me of that child in a sandbox. Where I really do not have, it's beyond consideration. It's way more powerful than consideration. So, if I can get to that place, and I frequently, I'm not able to get to that place. Yet, I still, even if I don't get to that place of blissful creation, I still carry on. Because at some point, I'll slip into that gear. You know, and it will frequently happen. That at the end of the song, all of a sudden, there will be this big outburst of tears. And I realize, oh my God, there it is. So, my soul has spoken something. And if I keep working on that, I have uh, no idea if anybody will ever hear release uh, or do anything with it on a marketability sense or a commercial sense. But I have played these for friends, and I've seen being moved to tears as well so is that worth it then hell yeah i would say it is worth it well the last question i always ask as a guest
0: is i ask them to recommend a photographer but in this case since you're not a photographer i'm going to ask you to recommend one musician that you think our listeners should discover and explore and it can be anyone someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that be for you and why
1: can I do more than one?
0: Just one.
1: <laughs> oh boy, don't you make it hard? <laughs> That's hard to come up. With. Uh, well, the person that immediately comes to mind, and so I'll grab him right off the front of my my uh, cerebral cortex here, is this uh, young piano player out of the East Coast that I was just, that I was talking about, who I believe lived in New York for a few years. His name is Brad Meldau, and that spells M E H L D A U and pretty much any jazz musician now that i know uh that is not in, into old time jazz uh n- knows about Brad Meldau and is in absolute awe about him i, I do uh, what i why i recommend listening to him is because brad uh, mixes uh the 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 stylistic product that he has that comes from his hands no matter if he improvises alone or with a band but whatever falls out of his hands or if it's one of his own compositions has um a, a very unique en- energy signature to it i mean part of me i'm very very envious of his amazing technique because his technique is flawless he's got uh, n- if you see him uh, and i did see him live at uh, cal state northridge he has a very very messed up posture you know, his his right hand is just literally perched up almost under his chin. And every cl- piano teacher will tell you, don't do that. Don't do that. You know what? He does it. He breaks a rule. And it sounds amazing. So my answer would be, let, listen to that music. And I think you will get far more than you would get ordinarily from jazz. You would get the European imprint of the classical composers of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century um French and German and Austrian and at the same time it it is in ex- how would you call it it is it is perfectly linked with the driving medium the rhythm of jazz um I think it's 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 a higher education that that he imparts by his harmonic exploration so there is my one recommendation but I have 10 more but my uh, oh, bad <laughs> well
0: thank you this turned out beautifully it's everything that i expected so thank you for opening your studio up for me and for being my friend
1: thanks so much i have a great admiration for you i'm so so appreciative you know you do so much work in the community i I checked out a lot of your posts and blog and podcasts it's 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 an honor to be your friend and thanks for having me on the show
0: thanks for joining me if you have any comments or suggestions about this or any other episode please drop me a line at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at the candidframe.com. You can also find us at Flickr, Facebook, or Twitter. Links to each can be found on the website. Till next time, this is Ivarian Xparello, and this is the Candid Frame.
1: Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com photocastnetwork.com